0: Welcome to Buy The Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and to the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Poldoian. Guys, it is the end of 2020. You know that this year's been a dumpster fire. I know this year's been a dumpster fire. I don't think we really need to do like a year in review for this podcast. Uh, So for today's episode, I wanted to talk to one of my favorite homies in the Houston wine scene about her 2020 and her plans for 2021. Emily Tolbert is the wine director of Savoie a neighborhood restaurant in the Heights neighborhood. She moved to Houston to pursue a career in medicine at MD Anderson Hospital before pivoting into wine. So she geeks out on the chemical side of fermentation and viticulture. Her left-brain approach to thinking about wine is a good contrast to my right-brained approach. Um, She also loves New Zealand wine, uh, which isn't something that's gotten a lot of love on the pod before, so I wanted to get into that a bit. Uh, Just a heads up, there was some yard work going on just outside my window. So for the first like five minutes, there's a little bit of background noise. Apologies in advance about that. Uh, we'll just jump right into the episode. Here's Emily. What grocery store are you going to? Like, cause I know you're in like Northish Heights. So where do you do your grocery shopping?
1: So I don't really grocery shop. Um, I mean, it's just me and I don't cook a whole lot just being in restaurants, but when I can get to the urban harvest market, that's in river Oaks, they, um,
0: isn't there a farmers market that takes place like at White Oak and Heights Boulevard? Isn't there also yeah, one there?
1: Yeah, but it's it's on Sundays while I'm at work, so
0: mm, challenging.
1: I do, I do Urban Harvest like Saturdays, and I'll get like some produce provisions there. And they have this guy, this mushroom guy, that has the best mushrooms ever. Yeah, like, mushrooms, not magic mushrooms. I'm sure he has magic mushrooms. You hit him up for
0: some mushies.
1: But oh, open that yeah, third where, eye. Yeah, it's where I get my kale, where I get my mushrooms, where I get squash. and The best life. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, cool. So today is the 28th. Did you Did you have a good Christmas? You guys were closed, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, we were closed Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Um, just was able to relax, hang out, yeah. watch some Christmas movies.
0: What's your go-to Christmas movie?
1: I, mean, I have to watch a Christmas story. Like have to. Have to watch Love actually. Have to watch Elf.
0: You have to watch all three of those movies?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah.
0: It's impressive. So growing up, we would watch Christmas Story because it was on like TBS or whatever for twenty four mm-hmm. hours straight. Yeah. and it was kind of like a thing yeah. where you would just like stop into the room and watch 15 minutes of it at a time so it was kind of like you're watching it in media res you're you're yeah. starting in the middle you come back in and then you watch the first 15 minutes you walk back in and he's and ralphie's beating up the older kid yeah. and then you come back in a little bit later and the lamp's gone or the lamp's getting delivered everything is just all like out of order it's, That that's my experience so- watching that film
1: so- Good. I used to do the 24-hour Christmas Story Marathon as a kid, too. And it would piss my brother off so much because he was like, we have the DVD. Why don't you just play the DVD and there's no commercials? And something about just watching it on TVS, I'm like, no, because the commercials you can take a break and can, like, kind of go do your thing. And I'm like, no, I like it on TV. And... Just a big conflict of visions on that do, one.
0: Do they still do that? Do they still air it for 24 hours straight?
1: I have no idea. I haven't had cable in years. Mm. Like, we're talking over a decade. So I have no... I couldn't
0: tell you. I feel like some some streaming service should offer that, where you can just, like, press play, and it'll play Christmas Story for, or, like, on repeat with, like, the occasional, like, commercial in there for Coles or Jell-O, yeah. you know, whatever it is.
1: <laughs> I... 110% support that.
0: It's like those things that you can watch where it's just like a two-hour video of like a fireplace with like the sound of the fire crackling and like yeah. Christmas carols in the background. Like, let's have that, but have it be Christmas story with commercials from TBS in the 90s. I Let's mean, do
1: I, that. I'd be a subscriber of that. So sure. you
0: guys were closed on the 24th and the 25th. Yeah. What did you eat then? I mean, you said that you're not much of a cook. So like, what was Christmas dinner?
1: So... I went. Our executive chef, um, Eric Johnson, his wife is Lexi Davis. Yeah, Johnson. yeah, she Lexi. Lexi. She is the wine director at Doris Met. So um, the two of us and some friends just went over there for to support her and then see her on Christmas and had. Dinner. They're
0: open Christmas Day.
1: Mm-hmm. They're open Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and it was fantastic. Like, you know, we were like, it's Christmas, let's just do it up. So did caviar service, did all of our favorite kind of like sides that they do. And, you know, I rarely eat steak and had some steak. And I was like, this is. Their thing
0: is that they do all their steaks sous vide, right? Isn't that their.
1: I think so. Yeah. It was pretty like, delicious.
0: Yeah. um, And they also uh, have that like killer fucking bread service that they do. Right.
1: Yeah. It's stupid. It's dumb. Yeah. I mean, I, I eat all of the carbs. I'm not someone that's like, I can't have carbs. I'm on a low carb keto diet. No, I'm like I'll eat all of your carbs for you. <laughs> cool, yeah. <laughs> so you
0: were there. What did you guys drink? What What was the uh, beverage of choice?
1: So to go with the I bread did, and the steak. Um Starting with some bubbles, um, then I am a sucker for a really well made martinis. So I did my normal Tanqueray Ten Martini, wet with a twist, and then I think that was followed by some shots of Chartreuse and Fernet, and then some Beaujolais. I couldn't tell you which Beaujolais it was. I just told Lexi, bring some crew Beaujolais. She brought it and they were so busy and it was kind of a whirlwind that we didn't, I didn't see the bottle, but it tasted like a Morgan. It was delightful. Hell yeah. It was just, it was a night to just relax, have fun, be around some wonderful people. and
0: Hell yeah, that sounds great. It sounds like a killer meal.
1: Yeah,
0: All the flavors. And then you guys are open for New Year's Eve, which is quickly approaching.
1: Yes, yes. What's the
0: game plan? Are you you guys doing anything special that night?
1: Yeah, so we're doing a prefix menu. Um, So just a multi-course prefix menu. There's going to be a choice of two different wine pairings. One sort of standard wine pairing. One that is a little bit more expensive with a little bit... um, kind of older vintage or just rare, more rare wines. And I'm super excited about it. So we we did this same type of format for Valentine's Day last year, and it was really successful. So I think it'll be the same this year. And um, we're not doing a late seating so that people can ring in the, the new year at Savoir, but if guests want to go to our cocktail lounge uh, called Sip, to ring in the new year then we are offering that so that should be quite fun that's
0: always the challenge right is that you have people that like get to the restaurant or get to the bar at seven at night and plan on taking up that table until eleven fifty nine, right you know the way we kind of got around that at camarada we did a champagne like class like a seated like tasting you may as well open late like we were always super dead until like 10 o'clock anyways yeah. So I think actually what we did was we did, um, the champagne class. It started at like four or five and then we opened to the general public at like seven or eight. Um, That's
1: smart.
0: yeah. Cause like, otherwise it's going to be crickets until then. So, yeah. so you guys are going to have the cocktail lounge sip open for new year's and like, you've worked in enough places like at new year's, like, what do you like to do? Like, do you play a song? Is there any like music that you play? Like, write it midnight or what do you do? Do you pop a bottle? What's the game plan?
1: Like for me personally, or for me as the wine steward at Savoir?
0: Maybe, maybe both. We'll start with wine steward at Savoir. Okay. Like, what do you do there?
1: You know, I, you can't ring in the new year without having a glass of bubbles. So, and it's, you know, it's. I'm not. You can think about it. Of oh, just give them anything that's sparkling. So that you're not hurting your cost. I'm like, no, you gotta ring it in with some champagne and like actual champagne. So I'm doing the the Pierre Sellier, just their brute, which is absolutely fantastic. So we're gonna ring in the new year for whichever guests are there that wanna celebrate 2021 at SIP, and we'll just pass that out, do a countdown, cheers, and then I'll probably start doing inventory right after. <laughs> so That's yeah. But no, I've always had this personal tradition for New Year's when I'm done counting inventory and I'm home for the evening, which, you know, obviously it's not right at the New Year. It's a couple hours after. But my thing is I love to shambong some really nice champagne. So um, you know what a shambong is, right? You had one- I know what it
0: is, but I don't know if listeners do. So maybe okay. we can let them in on that.
1: Okay, so a shambong is this little contraption where you take a classic sparkling wine flute, and what they did is they bent the stem, so it kind of takes on the same shape as like a beer bong. And on the flute side, you put in your sparkling wine, and then the stem side has a little spout, and that's what you put to your mouth, and then you invert it, and then obviously due to science the change in gravity and pressure pushes that champagne down the little stem part and into your mouth. And voila, you do a shambong. And my favorite thing about the shambong is their slogan is because it's awesome. Like that's probably one of the most brilliant (laughs) advertising slogans I've ever heard in my entire life.
0: Why not? (laughs) It's awesome, yeah.
1: yeah. Because it's awesome.
0: Yeah, we had a shambong at Camerata and we would use it for any number of things, um, whether it was actually sparkling wine or not. We would put, you know, Tokai in there. We would put Banal in there. Obviously, we do sparkling wine as well. But I think you actually christened the shambong at Camerata with Underberg, right? I think we just poured a fuck ton of Underberg in one of them. Like, Yeah, before. no,
1: it was, I mean, the under, the shambongs had been used before, but I was the first one to say, hey, can I put some Underberg in this and Shambong Underberg? Hell yeah! Um, because that's also an obsession. Is is Underberg? So,
0: so do you ha- <laughs> do you have any uh, resolutions for twenty twenty one?
1: I think if I had to pick some wine resolutions, you know, surprisingly enough, we don't have a whole lot of champagne drinkers. So I guess a big goal would be would be to have more non-wine professionals be into champagne and not just as a celebratory libation, but as something that you can drink throughout an entire meal that is great throughout an entire meal and to sort of understand how wonderful these wines really are. And that, you know, and it's obviously champagne, but that extends, I think that can easily extend to to any type of sparkling wine. You know, I think... You did an episode on British bubbles, which is um, one of my favorite types of sparkling wine. Francia Corda is another one that I think is underappreciated and underloved, but not because it's not great. I just think because people don't understand it or know about these wines as much as they should. And, you know, one cool thing about being a sawn is we can kind of take it upon ourselves to to open these wines and share them with guests and kind of open their minds to something really cool and something really different and new.
0: Yeah. I think, I think the biggest challenge with those, right, is that so often things like Frangia Corte and things like English Fizz and Champagne, right, they're all by the bottle selections. Very rarely do you see a sparkling wine selection that's as, you know, broad as the, you know, red wine or white wine that's being offered. Normally it's like, we've got a Prosecco and we have this thing that's like champagne or is champagne. Yeah. And then we have these like three reds and we have these three whites and a rosé. And, you know, if a restaurant had, Hey, we've got five sparkling wines that we pour by the glass. And then we have like two white wines and two red wines. It it kind of like lets that guest know, like these people fuck with bubbles, you know, and I should be drinking bubbles. Yeah. I think that, part of that might just be the fact that sparkling wine loses its effervescence really quickly. Like you can have a bottle of red wine open for like three days, but if you, if you open a bottle of sparkling wine, you really need to move it, you know, a little more quickly than maybe you do with others. I think that's part of it. So
1: there's more risk involved, but sometimes you got to take risks,
0: no ticket, no taco, no risk, no reward, baby.
1: But I don't, I don't, it's funny. I never really make personal resolutions. Um, I think if I if I had to think of a personal resolution, it also is wine related. Um, you know, in my mind, 2021 will kind of be a vast improvement or at least somewhat of an improvement, which will feel like a vast improvement to 2020. And it, in regards to being able to travel, Um, that's just one thing that I miss a whole bunch. 2020 was the first year that I was not able to go on a wine trip, that I was not able to travel anywhere. And that was a huge bummer. I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's not the end of the world that you can't travel anywhere right now, but when you're used to it, it definitely is a shock to your system a little bit, um, since that is the one sense of normalcy that i definitely lost so hopefully in 2021 i will be able to go on another wine trip but you know i've on all of the wine trips i've gone on they've been sponsored and you're sent by either an importer or a distributor or something like that and i think it'd be kind of cool to just go
0: diy it
1: do my own trip somewhere like just pick like I want to go to Australia or I want to go to Chile, Argentina and and just do it like be there myself and kind of go to the places that I want to go to and see the things I want to see.
0: So like what's a wine trip that you've gone on in the past, though, that you've like really vibed on?
1: Yeah, honestly, it was probably to New Zealand. That was definitely a trip of a lifetime. It was a, a trip that I quit my job to go on. Uh, because it's literally a trip that I probably not probably I will not be able to go on again. Like that's just not going mm-hmm. to happen.
0: How did that trip come about in the first place?
1: It you know it. There's a some friend of mine up in Chicago mm-hmm. who posted about it. This was twenty. This was like summer 2018, and she posted about it because she had gone on gone on this same trip the previous year. And she was, she just made a post saying how great this trip was, how enriching it was, and how fabulous it was. And if you are a wine professional, you should consider applying and hopefully seeing if you're able to be selected to go on this trip. And so my mind, I was like, why not? Like, what have I got to lose? And you would talk to one of the, um, Delegates of the New Zealand Wine Growers Association. And it was the coolest thing. It was just, it was, it was the coolest thing. And it was, it was 14, it was 14 days with travel, I guess, 16 days. The cool thing with, with traveling there is it's a direct flight from Houston to Auckland.
0: Wow. That's wild. How long is that flight. flight? It's
1: like 15 hours. Yeah. But when I left, it was right after we ran the, um, the Chevron half marathon. Well, you did the full marathon and then the rest of us did the half marathon. So I was, you did it
0: like literally that day, like,
1: yeah, that morning. And then that evening left for New Zealand. Yeah. And so I was exhausted. So I slept about 12 hours on the flight. Yeah.
0: (laughs) You got some stretching in on the flight. Yeah. Got some good, like, lumbar support in your seat. Like, wore some compression socks. I mean.
1: Oh, yeah. It was great. But, uh, yeah, that trip was probably, to date, probably the best, most memorable, most educational wine trip that I have been on that has definitely made me a better SOM, a better professional, and was definitely worth resigning my my post at, at Del Frisco's to to go on. So Hell,
0: yeah. yeah. That's pretty dope to be like, deuces, I'm out. I'm headed down under, going yeah. to New Zealand. So, like, walk me through the itinerary of that trip. Did you just go north to south? Like, do you go south to north? Like, what's the vibe?
1: It, so, we started, I guess, we started in the North Island. But we started in the central part of North Island. Mm. And then kind of started in like the Gimlet Gravels area and then went up north and then went back down into like Martinborough and then down into Marlborough and then ended in Central Otago.
0: So North Island and then South Island and then the southernmost part of the South Island. Like exactly. I, think, I think, you know, the challenge, right, is that everyone thinks about New Zealand as like this place that makes a fuck ton of Sauvignon Blanc and not a whole lot else. Yeah. I think that's probably the perception of 95% of wine drinkers, right? Yeah. But there is like some really cool shit coming from New Zealand that and, uh, is Syrah, Riesling, Pinot Noir. Were there any like really like mind-blowing moments for you when you were visiting different regions or things that kind of like caught you by surprise?
1: Yeah, um, Syrah and Pinot for sure. Uh, probably the biggest one for me was was Chardonnay. Hmm. I thought the Chardonnay – out there was outstanding, um and it had this unique kind of like fresh corn like hmm. to it that I've never picked up on in any other chardonnay from from any other part of the globe. and they had so much finesse and yet they had this really great richness that balanced with that finesse and they were just they were so good,
0: so like I'm trying to think about chardonnay in new zealand is i imagine it's coming from the south island right like where it's a little bit cooler yes and what's like the oak regimen are they oaking their chardonnay much because yeah. i gotta imagine like getting those barrels down there has to be super fucking expensive right
1: yeah. i mean it was a little bit of both there were some places that were doing um all stainless steel some that were doing oak so it really i mean it's it's Chardonnay, so it, it, it's kind of based on, on the winemaker and and what they want to do with it. Um, you know, it's not, I think, as dogmatic as in Chablis. It's really just focused on stainless steel. Um, whereas in Merceau, you definitely have that robust oak regiment or in California where it's all new oak. or de- It just depends. But we did this this symposium and what i liked about this symposium it was all chardonnay it was over two days and the first day was a chardonnay a sparkling chardonnay uh, symposium so all blanc de blanc sparkling wines from new zealand and the next day was just regular still chardonnay but they looked at it not so much of is this wine oaked is this one not oaked like what kind of you know, what is the viticultural practice that allows these wines to express these certain characteristics, what they really looked at. And it was a huge dive into the genetics of Chardonnay. And it was putting different clones of Chardonnay side by side and comparing and contrasting the different clonal types of Chardonnay. And they pitted them against each other. Well, not against each other, they just compared and contrasted. And that was probably by far the most interesting tasting I've ever done uh, just because we don't really think we being wine professionals, you know, we don't really think about, you know, how does the specific genetics of, of a grape or how does its biochemistry or how does its lineage really affect the wine's, you know, final character and, and its expression and to taste different clonal types of Chardonnay. That was the coolest thing because that's, yeah. that's my background and that's where I come from. And so being able to, to finally have a tasting where I can experience, you know, my perspective and my background being reflected that, that was really cool. Uh, just because it, it was super unique and it just doesn't happen often. And, Yeah, I loved it.
0: Yeah, it's funny. When you talk to producers in Willamette Valley, Oregon, they'll say that, like, in the late 90s, there was this huge transition when they replanted everything with, like, Dijon clones. That before that, they were using some, like, UC Davis, you know, clone that just made really flabby Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. And it was only once they went through that very specific clonal selection that they were able to produce really age worthy, impressive, vivacious, you know high-toned chardonnay's in Oregon. Yep. Um I've known producers to talk about that and Laura Rees a uh, friend of the pod who did the uh, English sparkling wine episode, yep. she talked a lot about using specific clones for, you know, the vineyards that they have up there where, you know, it's such a challenging climate that finding that right clonal selection that thrives in that like more humid, cooler yep. climate area like super super important. Um so, Chardonnay, that was the big surprise.
1: That was a big surprise. Yeah, I was, and to this day, like, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love Chardonnay. There's a lot of basic things about me that are just basic. And being a lover of the Shardy Party is certainly one of them. Um, you the know,
0: Shardy Party. The
1: shot, or as the, the Aussies on the trip would say, Shardy Party. <laughs> <laughs> probably how it should be said because shardy party is definitely not as charming as Party. was
0: there like one or two producers that just really stood out to you um either in the sparkling wines or in the still chardonnays
1: Oof. um for the sparkling wine definitely number one family estate um they're actually a family originally from champagne hmm. that moved to new zealand and began their um estate down there and their, their sparkling wines, I think are fantastic. And they're super balanced and finessed and lean, but have a lot of character to them. And then for still Chardonnay, it was probably Vidal. Their wines were insane. Like I've never experienced, like the l- layers of complexity that were involved in these Chardonnays was reminiscent of some Burgundy to me, Mm. Um, reminiscent of some of the best Chardonnay producers in California and Oregon. To me, it just, they were so, these wines were just enigmatic and so well made that it was this insane symphony of different characteristics so well orchestrated and melded together and yeah those wines blew my mind hell yeah yeah
0: so you were saying chardonnay was one of them and then the other like aha moment for you was did you say it was pinot noir or what was the other one
1: i mean the pinots pinot noirs in in new zealand i think are absolutely fantastic um but i loved pinot noir from new zealand for a couple years prior so I went into I went into that trip already having a love for those wines. Mm-hmm. Um, Syrah was a really big one. Um, yeah, just the pepperiness of them. The they have like this wonderful texture and grip and and this really beautiful florality to them that I loved. Um, but a really big one was was trying some Italian varieties that hmm. were, you know, grown in New Zealand. And so was able to try some Nebbiolo, some Dolcetto. That's
0: wild. I had no idea that that was planted down there.
1: Oh, yeah, some Verdicchio, some Vermentino, Vermentino. And Vermentino was great. Nebbiolo was great. Um, are
0: those coming from like, Marlboro area? Or are they coming from like,
1: they like North, North Island? They're, yeah, or? They're like Hawks Bay.
0: Oh, North there Island, yeah. okay, right. Yeah,
1: and I just, I mean, I had no idea that New Zealand was growing Italian grape varieties. Um, Albarino, even though it's not Italian, they're doing, I ha- remember having a really cool Albarino. Hell yeah. And, um, you know, it just really went to show that you can't pigeonhole certain wine-growing regions. you They are so mm. much more than what, you know, the general consumer and wine professional thinks, you know, I think it's great that New Zealand is known for Sauvignon Blanc to have that kind of international recognition is astounding and amazing. And hopefully because they have that international recognition that gets people to try all of the other diverse grape varieties that are grown and produced there, because I'm, I'm trying to think of a wine that I didn't think was great, and i would say probably my least favorites were your Bordelais varieties but they still weren't bad yeah Everything, like i was just so surprised with how wonderful you know this Nebbiola was how wonderful this vermentino was and this albarino it was just it was pretty it was pretty incredible and it was really yeah. great to experience that
0: i'm also thinking about it from the perspective of like you know, the people that are putting this on like the New Zealand viticultural group or whoever, right? Mm -hmm. Like their ultimate goal, right, is to have, you know, a bunch of sommeliers, wine professionals, wine writers, whoever else was on this trip, right? Their goal is to get them to see New Zealand is more than just Sauvignon Blanc, right? Like, that's their hope is that all of these people that attend the trip are then going to evangelize these other wines coming from the country, right? So with that in mind, were they kind of were they willing to like talk about like sauvignon blanc like how much was that like part of the conversation oh, when it, you guys were there
1: It was a huge part. It was yeah. we spent I think 3 days in Marlborough. Yeah. And we did they had this huge Sauvignon Blanc symposium. It was definitely the largest event of the of the trip and large being the number of people in attendance. And mm. it was in it took place in this, it looked like a large concert hall and in like the town of Marlborough. Mm. And it was a couple days of just different discussions that all kind of centered around Sauvignon Blanc. And then it was followed by you were put into different groups and you were taken to a specific winery and you would just taste through all other wineries Sauvignon Blancs and and or what we uh, came to call it Savi B which I'll refer to Sauvignon Blanc as Savi B for the rest of my life now you know I, I think it's easy for wine professionals to to stick their nose up at Sauvignon or stick their nose up to New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc because it's kind of in my mind, it's like the cartoon character of Sauvignon Blanc. It's very expressive and it's very loud, and it's it's you know it has this huge personality. And so I think it's easy to just kind of dog on it. Also, I think it's easy for wine professionals to dog on New Zealand Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc because it's so popular with the masses. And I think a, mm. a common trait of of wine professionals is we don't want to like things that the masses like. But honestly... I mean,
0: that's true of most industries, right? Like, people always love to shit on the thing that...
1: Uh... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I have... I mean, one, I've always loved Sauvignon Blanc. I've always liked and enjoyed drinking New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And honestly, it was pretty cool to be there. Um, to be in, like, the Awatere Valley in Wairarapa and Wairarapa and see the land and see this vast, you know, vineyard space... And drinking all of these different wines that some were oaks, some were not. Some were aged in cement. Some were aged in fujas. Like to see, you know, some were made into pet gnats. Like to just see so many different styles. And yeah, at the end of the day, it's New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. You're pretty much drinking, uh, if you're thinking about it on a molecular level, you're drinking like the same thing. But each of them kind of had a different, you know, little quirk. And, and I thought it was really cool and I I thought it was interesting and, and it's not, it's not like it reinvigorated this almighty passion for New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc in my soul, but it made me appreciate it a little bit more and it made me, you know, realize this is some, you know, at the end of the day, it's quaffable tasty stuff. I understand why people love it. I understand why I like it. And at the end of the day, this allowed me to try some different producers who I thought were doing some killer stuff. So yeah, I mean, Sauvignon Blanc was definitely part of the trip, and and I, I don't think there would be any other way around that. You know, that's definitely their their biggest. Um, you know, Sauvignon Blanc is their. It's their, yeah, it's their cash cow yeah their cash they 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 have to celebrate they have to focus mm-hmm. on it if you're gonna have if they're going to have the financial means to be able to
0: do all the other fun stuff do,
1: do everything else and to import all the other wines so or export i should say
0: yeah yeah Did, i mean i guess i'm curious like what sort of existential quandary exists for new zealand in the next like three to five to 10 years, you know, like where where do they see themselves? I mean, you talk to a lot of like, French winemakers, and the threat of climate change is like, this is really going to fuck us up, like it's going to radically change the types of wines that we make. And you talk to winemakers in Spain, and I mean, they had like, fucking horrible droughts, they had like a horrible harvest this past year. And all around the world, you know, the issue of labor, it is a huge thing that's affecting the way in which wine is made. And we've seen that a little bit with like Valentina Pasolacqua, with like labor practices not being, you know, ethical. And New Zealand's a country that doesn't have a lot of inexpensive labor, I bet. So there's just a lot of different elements that can change the way in which wine is made down there, right? And how much of that was like present, that underlying kind of existential dread as you guys like visited everything or things that you thought about while you were visiting all these producers?
1: You know, what I gathered from just being around winemakers, winery employees, you know, vineyard workers, and, and just the New Zealand populace, I, I've i never experienced a, a general populace that is so just happy and content. One thing that really surprised me um, when we were there visiting is how Early everything starts. I remember being in Auckland and just you know it was one of our being able to be in the city, so one of our city getaways, so to say, and you know walking around to go get some coffee. And I'm for being a restaurant industry professional, I am a an early riser, so I'll be up at like seven. So I'm like, there's got to be a coffee place open at you know six thirty, seven in the morning. By like 7 30, everything was open, like shops, grocers. You know, I think normal opening hours for the United States is like 10, like not yeah. 10, sometimes 11 o'clock. Here it was like 7 a.m., like, and everyone was out. That's wild. Everyone was out walking around doing their thing. On the flip side, everything closed at about 5 p.m. Hmm. You know, restaurants would stay open till like 8. So things close really early. Didn't they used to
0: have like a curfew? Wasn't that a thing in New Zealand mm-hmm. that like mm-hmm. you weren't allowed bars weren't allowed to be open past a certain point? It was yeah. part of like the temperance movement or whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think some of that still still exists today as this weird specter in their in their culture and their cultural practices. But um but no, but everyone is early risers and they're all really happy. I don't think I came across one angry kiwi. Hmm at all like it was just I've never seen a culture that's just happy to be alive happy to be doing their normal everyday thing and is just content I think that type of, of that level of of contentment is just doesn't exist here it's not something we really know because we're
0: it's in Scandinavia yeah, and it's in New Zealand and, and that's
1: that's all it is yeah and it's it's it was and en- it's enviable for sure so how that, I think, links to what you were talking about there, you know, this this potential existential crisis is, I, I don't know if they'll experience that. You know, first of all, they they take biosecurity extraordinarily serious. Um, so, like, I remember getting to the airport and I had an apple. You're trying
0: to smuggle apples into the country?
1: Yeah, I had an apple, and, and I thought I was going to go to, like, New Zealand airport prison uh, but they're just like just throw it away we'll just forget this ever happened I'm like I'm so ashamed I'm so sorry so that being said you know their agriculture I think will sustain fairly well because there's not going to be really any outside species that'll come in that'll yeah, I guess
0: they're pretty isolated
1: Invade, I guess like you know there was a couple winemakers that admitted to you know, smuggling in some clippings, some vine clippings. (laughs) But some um, suitcase cuttings, yeah. Um, but other than that, you know, they it's an extraordinarily biologically diverse country. They take biosecurity extraordinarily seriously. As we've
0: seen with the coronavirus, right? Like they locked down and they've had like fucking three cases in the past like six months. It's wild.
1: And so I think in regards to their viticultural practices, that's going to be very good for them in the coming years. I mean, in terms of labor, I actually think it's fairly easy to get a, a working visa there. Um, mm. I think it's pretty strict in the amount of time that you can be there. But if, let's say I wanted to go work harvest there, uh, I would essentially just have to be sponsored by a winery in terms of labor i don't really see that being a potential issue i think just the big issue that viticulture has in the coming years is is global warming i mean there's no there's no way around that and especially with wine because you know it is an agricultural product and it is bound to the earth and to everything the earth brings it you know we'll see what happens you know it's the very reason why there's sparkling wine production in, in England, like it, yeah, you know, it's why British Columbia is, is becoming a burgeoning wine region. It's why these northerly and, you know, conversely, southerly regions are able to now produce wine, which is a, which is a good thing. That's cool. That's really interesting. But for places like burgundy yeah it sucks
0: like we were talking earlier about like the chemistry of specific wines right and you were telling me how you love to geek out on that side of you know the like viticultural and fermentation side of things a little context for listeners right is that you moved to houston to pursue a career in medicine and then pivoted out of that to work in wine i think so often like we talk about wine in very like in platitudes. And we love to talk to consumers about grapes and soil and minerality. But you see it through a very different lens. And for listeners that aren't super familiar with that molecular side of wine, Mm -hmm. like what is the easiest way that you would be able to describe it for them?
1: I don't know if there's an easy way to do it, I would have to be revert back to your high school chemistry, boys and girls. And and re-
0: those are dark, dark memories for me. <laughs> not something that I...
1: Oh, man, I had a great time in high school chemistry. <laughs> and- that was
0: my lowest grade in high school was chemistry. I think chemistry oh, or physics. Right? I can't remember. Oh, yeah, not not my strong suit.
1: I loved it. I think... I mean, I didn't really get great grades in in high school, but my IB test scores <laughs>
0: were
1: great anyway. No, I mean, it. it all goes back to those very elementary tenets of of chemistry. And, and, you know, you think about what are the different types of bonds that form compounds? You know, you have, there's a few different types. The ones that make sense uh, for wine are your covalent bonds, your ionic bonds. You know, what does that mean in regards to the compound and how that compound will interact with other compounds. And in regards to explaining the various aromatics of, of wine, it's all based on that. It's all right. You have all of these molecules, you have billions of molecules, billions of compounds that all come together and form to create the very specific aromatic profile of certain wines. And it's these relations between these compounds and the relations between these molecules that that help explain why a wine kind of has the certain characteristic that it does. Um, you know, since we're talking about New Zealand, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc is a really great, great variety to use as an example of how the specific molecular makeup of a, of a wine explains why it has a certain character it does because like i said earlier new zealand sauvignon blanc is kind of like this cartoon character version of of sauvignon blanc and and because of that there's different types of of aromatic compounds that help explain why a wine smells the way it is for for sauvignon blanc that big one is going to be called a pyrazine and pyrazines are responsible for your kind of grassy green sort of notes. So, you know, the grassiness that you smell in New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, the kind of cilantro, parsley, or or sometimes uh, for me, I get like this jalapeno thing going on. Um, that's all in this kind of pyrazine family. But they have a high concentration of pyrazines and they have a high concentration of esters and esters are the aromatic compounds that code for fruitiness in wine. So any type of robust fruit character you get in a wine, that's going to be from an ester. And that's kind of the, every wine is built up of esters. Um, I mean, that's just the yeah. predominant aromatic compound that's present in wine.
0: It's it's funny. I feel like when I talk to consumers, like if I know that that guest at Table 22 is like a doctor or a surgeon or has like a clinical background of some sort, right? I know that I can speak to him about these things and it'll resonate with him in a way that it wouldn't necessarily if I'm talking to someone else who is just like, oh, this wine's fruity. It's funny to see the way certain people perceive wine.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing I appreciate about having this knowledge, uh, because it's the chemistry of wine is definitely the facet of wine that really drew me to really falling in love with this industry and with wine in general and with wine study, because it was something that made sense to me. Mm -hmm. And in regards to having this knowledge and being able to utilize it as a professional, you know, it definitely, for me, I think it makes me a better taster um, because you know, as much as I also love learning about the history of a region or of a place, I don't think that that knowledge is great in other parts of what we do as wine professionals. But I think having a knowledge of the chemistry of a wine helps me be a better taster, which in terms, it helps me kind of, internalize what I'm perceiving. And it helps me be able to describe that to my staff. So when I sit down and I go through all the, by the glass wines with a new hire, you know, and I'm tasting the wines with them as I'm internalizing, what I'm perceiving, what I'm smelling, what I'm tasting, having this knowledge of, of the chemistry of wine, it in a weird way helps me explain x wine to this new server or this new bartender i guess the
0: challenge is translating that into like things that are easily digestible and not scary because i think when some yeah. people hear words like covalent bond they're like yeah. oh fuck like you no know,
1: it's like what's isopropyl pyrazine, I'm, mm-hmm, just pyrazine. <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah and like science it's weird i feel like everyone has a mind for science and math and Whatever reason we have this society, that, speak
0: for yourself. I, yeah, I do no, not I have I a mind really for science.
1: feel like everyone does. It's just, I was really lucky to have really great teachers at a very early age. And I think, what if everyone had that? Then, you know, we would all be these really well rounded individuals. Like, I can't, I'm not artistic or creative in any way, shape, or form. But what if I had a really great art teacher that? Maybe I could be artistic or creative in some way. Sometimes I'm surprised that I can even dress myself every day. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But no, I will say science is a pretty cut and dry thing. And, you know, I don't really relate to that side of wine when I'm talking to guests because they'll just be like, who is this crazy person and what is she talking about? And what did she just say to me? I like I'm offended. You know, this
0: mad scientist. <laughs> so, anyone that follows you on IG knows that you have recently been watching a lot of old movies, some vintage movies.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. They're some of my favorites. Why do
0: you think you've been going back in time and watching some of those like golden age films? What what what's up with that?
1: I don't know. I I mean, I've never been a big movie buff, so to speak or film buff. That was definitely my brother. But, you know, I just, I think I just appreciate that type of filmmaking. I i like, I just, you know, I don't need a bunch of crazy visual effects and and computer graphics to be wowed by a film. Uh, if anything, you know, I love, is it a great story? Is it written well? Is it, is it? What's the cinematography like? Um, How's the acting? And I just think there's this sensibility of older films that we just don't experience anymore. I love old black and white movies. I love old, I mean, Kubrick is probably one of my favorite directors of all time. Um, I love old Hitchcock films. I love films that just make you think that are very cerebral.
0: Give me your top three films you've seen in the past couple of months that fit kind of that category.
1: Oof! Let's see. One of my all-time favorites always will be "Singing in the Rain." That movie will forever be one of my absolute favorites, no matter what.
0: I didn't. I didn't know you were big into musicals.
1: I'm not. I'm not. But I just love no? that movie. I just, I just love that movie. It's so oh. good. It's so good. And let's see, uh, "Doctor Strange Love." That was brilliant, funny, weird, crazy. I loved it. Um sunset boulevard i recently watched and that was Mm. awesome that was
0: where'd you watch it was it what was it on amazon was it on uh i
1: just i just got it on amazon prime yeah Mm -hmm. it was but i don't think i had to purchase it i think it was for free it was because you know when you purchase stuff and it's yeah like you will like um these movies or movies you may like. like oh cool uh you know william holden like i love him you know Love the movie Sabrina. So, let's watch it. Okay, and we're going
0: to do a battle royale real quick. Ugh. Hitchcock or Kubrick? Kubrick. Really? Yeah. He's made fewer films than uh Gotta than uh it. Hitchcock did.
1: Got to do it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I say that now, but then I'm thinking of like my favorite Hitchcock films like Vertigo and and Psycho and and um The Rope. I finally watched The Rope like a couple months ago and it was so good. Yeah, that's the
0: original tracking mm-hmm. shot. That's the original one-take movie.
1: So good. God, it like blew my mind. Yeah,
0: 1917 ain't got nothing on rope. Damn. All right, and one last question for you. Okay. Um, pineapple on pizza. Why is it underrated?
1: Okay, okay. Hawaiian pizza's the best. And for all you naysayers, I'll tell you why. You have your sweet, you have your salty, you have your savory, you have your fat- you literally have, you know, what I like to do is throw in some some jalapeno, so you have your spice.
0: You're doing like an al pastor pizza, essentially. No. Is what so you're like thinking.
1: you have this amalgam of flavors that are one cohesive marriage, and it's basically the best fiesta in your mouth ever. And for anyone that disagrees, I just feel sorry for you. That's all I have to say. I know it's contentious, but when it comes to Hawaiian pizza. And pineapple and pizza. I'm I'm okay being contentious.
0: What what wine are we pairing with this pineapple pizza?
1: Ooh. That's a good question.
0: That's why people come on BTG to get asked the hard <laughs> questions. That's what we're here
1: for. That is a hard question. You know what? I mean, if we're gonna celebrate New Zealand. I would totally drink some New Zealand Riesling with that.
0: Is there a producer of uh, New Zealand Riesling that you really love that you want to shout out real quick?
1: Probably Vidal again. That was probably my favorite producer. In-
0: Vidal, MVP of the episode. Here we go. Yeah.
1: they, The wines that they produced were spectacular.
0: I like uh, Mount Difficulty makes a good uh, Ooh, yeah, Central Otago it. Riesling. Yeah, it's pretty yummy. So.
1: Yeah, they do. That one is... Also fantastic.
0: Anything else you want to let people know?
1: If you haven't shambonged, I highly, highly recommend you go on Amazon, buy a shambong and ring in the new year with a shambong because it is the most fun. And then you'll have this really pretty nice glass set of shambong to ring in any type of celebration at any time. Even a Wednesday night.
0: <laughs> and Shambong, if you're listening, sponsor the pod. <laughs> Let, let's do some spawn con. Yeah, Let, yeah. Let's make that happen, Shambong. You know, we'll get a promo code in there for listeners. It'll be like shambong.com slash buy the glass podcast. We'll get it going for people. Yeah, Shambong. We'll you,
1: should, you should, yeah, you should sponsor, sponsor the pod because. For the 8.4 million
0: listeners out there, oh, you know, yeah. that are. Thirsty for the shambong, you know,
1: that's that's what we're here for. Because it's awesome.
0: Because it's awesome. I love it. Cool. Emily, where can people find you?
1: Well, you can find me in in multiple places, um, predominantly at work. So at Savoir and our Instagram is at Savoir Houston. My Instagram is at getsom 13 Or if you're into Pilates, come join me at Boost Pilates in the Heights. It's on Heights Boulevard right next to the the 10 Access Road. I love it. Uh, do some Pilates with me.
0: There we go. Cool. Emily, thank you so much. This has been rad.
1: Yay. It's been so dope. It's been so great to, to finally do this with you.
0: All right, everyone. That is our show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Thanks for listening all 2020. And we look forward to seeing you guys in 2021. Subscribe to By The Glass so you can listen to every conversation I've ever had with anyone. Uh, You can find those episodes on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast. All of those uh, resources are available to you. Uh, Look forward to seeing you next year. Bye.